This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. What happens when a high school student gets kicked off the cheerleading squad over a profane Snapchat post? Well, in the case of the teenager known as BL, the Supreme Court will decide whether the school violated her First Amendment rights. BL and her father, Larry Levy, told CNN that the school had no right to punish her for expressing her anger at not making the varsity squad by cursing at the school in a Snapchat post, along with a picture of her and a friend with their middle fingers raised. In the rules, it did not have anything about what I can and can't say out of school and out of my uniform. I wasn't proud of her expression. Um, However, I I felt that at that situation that the... uh, the school overstepped their boundaries, and it, it was my decision to punish her, at, at which time I did take the appropriate steps that I felt necessary for the, what she had done. The Justice Department has filed a brief telling the justices that the federal appeals court got it wrong when it ruled for the student. Joining me is noted First Amendment expert Eugene Volokh, a professor at UCLA Law School. Eugene, tell us about the Third Circuit's opinion. So let's just step back a little bit. The Supreme Court in the Tinker case, said that students' free speech rights don't stop at the schoolhouse gate. But what if the student is speaking outside the schoolhouse gate and outside any school program that's not via Zoom to school or anything like that? She's just speaking by herself on her social media page or maybe writing a letter to the editor of a newspaper or talking at church or talking at some political rally. Can the student be disciplined? That is to say, can the student be kicked off the team or expelled from school or suspended from school? on the grounds that the effects of her speech are disruptive at the school. And lower courts have split on the subject. The Third Circuit says no. Student speech outside school is generally speaking protected from school retaliation. And other circuits say, well, no, if the speech seems likely to be seen at school or be seen by students and others, then it may have effects that are disruptive at school, and that could be just as bad as disruptive speech at school. And that's the the question that the Supreme Court is going to have to be resolving. To what extent can off-campus speech lead to discipline because of its on-campus? The Justice Department says the Third Circuit misread Tinker. Is the Justice Department taking that position because of the categorical rule that the Third Circuit took? Well, uh, so the Justice Department is trying to chart something of a middle course. On one hand, it acknowledges that off-campus speech should generally be protected from retaliation by the school. And I think that's, that's got to be right. I mean, imagine somebody is involved in some political movement outside school or some religious campaign or something like that, and it's very offensive to other people at school. They may view it as blasphemous or they may view it as racist or as unpatriotic or whatever else. You can't have the school have 24-7 control, essentially, of a student's speech and threaten to expel the student because of what he's saying in the context of this political movement. It doesn't have to be a big picture political movement. It could just be this person expressing his views on his Instagram account or on a Twitter feed or something like that. So I think the Justice Department acknowledges that, indeed, allowing the school to punish this wide range of -of out-of-school speech just because it may be disruptive at school would be going too far. But the Justice Department says there are three situations in which uh, the school authorities do have to have some authority to punish off-school speech. One is if the speech threatens the school community. 
this talk of bombing the school or shooting up the school or something like that. Now, of course, if that's a true threat of violence, it could be punished, even if it's not a student saying it, if it's anybody saying it, they could go to jail for it. But there are some borderline things which are kind of menacing, maybe implicitly threatening, maybe not enough to be criminally punishable, but the school has to be able to maybe expel a student or suspend a student just to get them out of the place where other people think they might be trying to mount an attack. A second category that the government points to is speech that intentionally targets specific individuals or groups in the school community. So that might be personal insults of classmates or maybe of teachers or administrators, and that the school needs to be able to restrict that in order to prevent kind of undue distraction and hurt feelings at school. But at the same time, such a restriction would leave students free to express whatever views they want in a broader sense, political views, religious views, moral views, and the like. And then the third category is the one that the Justice Department suggests applies here, but it's actually hardest to figure out. If it intentionally targets specific school functions or programs regarding matters essential to or inherent in the functions or programs themselves, says the government. And it suggests that here what was happening is she was intentionally targeting her cheerleading team by essentially expressing contempt for the project. And that is this intentional targeting regarding matters essential to the function, which may have to do with kind of morale and freedom. So uh, the government is trying to chart this middle course, protect students' rights to talk broadly about kind of big picture, social, moral, political, religious issues, but allow restrictions for various kinds of speech. And I think the third one, the one that they view as applicable here, is probably the most troublesome one, just because it's so hard to figure out. What counts as intentionally targeting school functions or programs? What if somebody were to say, you know, I think our history program has become too woke and become too critical race theory, and I think it's awful. Uh, well, is that intentional targeting regarding matters essential to or inherent in the functions or programs so that a student can be disciplined in school for that? I don't think that can be right. Uh, but again, the boundaries of what the, of what the government is trying to do, especially as to this third category, are hard to figure out. It also seems like that third category covers a lot of comment that the students may make about school programs. Right, exactly. And not just comments by students who are on a team, because in principle, it could apply to somebody else condemning the cheerleading uh, uh, program, because it would still be targeting specific school functions or programs regarding matters essential to the programs themselves. Now, you could imagine the, uh, a court saying, look, um, there needs to be a different rule for removal from an optional program, especially one that is not fundamentally academic, from expulsion or suspension. So you may say, look, cheerleading or even being on a basketball team um, might be seen as almost a kind of job. It's a combination of being a student, but also doing a particular task for the school, representing the school in some and maybe if you say something that undermines your ability to do that job, you could be, in a sense, fired from that job, removed from the team. Uh, but you're still a student in good standing and still graduate. You're not being suspended from academics or anything like that. You're just just uh, being removed from the place that you've been undermining. with Not place, removed from the particular uh, uh, program that you're undermining uh, with, uh, uh, with your speech. So you can imagine the court saying that. So it's not a matter 
of whether it is somehow targeted uh, at a, a school function. It's a matter of whether the whether the school is just removing you from some such team as opposed to expelling you or suspending you from school at large. So, uh, however, the question presented before the Supreme Court, at least officially, if you look at the petition and the question presented there, is whether um, uh, the, the tinker test for restricting disruptive speech applies to out-of-school speech. So, that, so maybe that a court says, look, we agreed to hear this case about out-of-school speech writ large, but this, this question about whether there should be a special rule for athletic teams and similar, similar programs, that's something that we can leave for lower courts to reconsider. How have the other circuits come out on this? Do they have a categorical rule, one way or the other? They generally say, and I oversimplify here, but they generally say that even off-campus speech can lead to discipline. And again, not just removal from a team, but suspension from school, even expulsion from school. If the speech kind of foreseeably causes uh, disruption on campus. So they say, well, it needs to be speech that can be perhaps seen on campus or will be paid attention to on campus. But of course, these days, that's anything, right? Anything that you say off campus uh, on Twitter or Instagram or whatever else can be read on campus, can be read by classmates who then remember it and talk about it on campus. But even if you write a letter to the editor, it's going to be posted online, it can be read on campus. If you give a speech at a political rally, chances are that it's going to be live streamed or recorded and uh, put on YouTube and can be seen on campus. Or again, even if it's not read on campus or viewed on campus, other students will see it at home and then come to campus and may be upset by it on campus. So in practice, the other circuits basically say if something you say, even if it's off campus, causes disruption, causes possible fights on campus or distraction or really grave upset, then in that case you can be punished for it. And that's what I'm referring to as this 24-7 control over everything that a student may say including, again, political speech, religious speech, speech on moral issues and the like. Has the Supreme Court cut back on students' First Amendment rights? Well, uh, it all depends compared to what and compared <laughs> to when. So in the Tinker case in 1969, I think it's generally thought that the court really broadened students' rights. It used to be that the schools had very broad authority. But then, starting with Tinker, the theory was that schools could only restrict speech if it is disruptive enough. And then in a few cases after that, the court did, you could say, cut back on that, or you could say, kind of establish the limits of that principle. So, for example, in the Bethel School District case, the court said, look, vulgar speech, whether it's vulgarities or just kind of sexual innuendo, can be punished when said at school. Because unlike in Tinker, where it involved anti-war protests, here, nobody was going after the viewpoint of the speech. It wasn't political speech. It was just the school teaching kids how to behave, including how to speak in kind of polite way. So that might be seen as cutting back on the Tinker principle or maybe establishing the boundaries. Another case called Morsi Frederick said that speech, non-political speech, that can be reasonably seen as promoting drugs or advocating in favor of drug use can be restricted, again, at school functions. That could also be seen as cutting back in Tinker, or again, establishing the boundaries of it, that Tinker uh, uh, 
applies only to political advocacy and not just the, the, the general sort of talk about drugs being good or something like that. That was the, sort of the court's theory in some measure there. And then one other case called Hazelwood School District uh, versus Kuhlmeyer uh, involved uh, a speech in a student newspaper and made clear that uh, the principal or the administration could restrict speech in a student newspaper. So I think that has less to do with students and more to do with the fact that a, a government entity can control its own publication. So, for example, a um, government employer might have an internal newsletter for, uh, for its employees, uh, but the editorial control would be in the hands of the management and not whoever happens to be the writer. So there have been these cases that, that might be seen as cutting back on student protection. Uh, but interestingly, I don't think they've cut back as much as lower courts have interpreting Tinker uh, in saying that, yes, out-of-school speech can be, uh, can be restricted. That is a really very substantial restraint on student speech. And the question is whether the court will at least balk at that and say that, no, uh, generally speaking, with whatever exceptions, but generally speaking, out-of-school speech has to be protected against uh, uh, school retaliation. Is that what you think the court will do? Well, I'm not sure what it will do. Uh, I'm going to be filing an amicus brief quite likely uh, on behalf of some law professors uh, arguing that that's what the court should do, that the court should uh, make clear that at least generally speaking, with some exceptions, off-campus student speech can't lead to uh, school discipline. Uh, But what the court will do, I can't really tell. (laughs) Just generally, have free speech issues become more difficult in the light of social media? Well, I'm not sure more difficult. Uh, there certainly have been some controversies that before would likely not have been as controversial. So uh, the, the, this issue could equally come up when if uh, she were saying that at a restaurant where teammates would over, could overhear, or if she were saying that at some political event where it was captured on a on a hot mic or something like that. Um, uh, but uh, uh, but in practice, it would be much less likely that it would that it would be noticed by the school authorities. So one thing about social media is it takes what otherwise would have been just kind of casual chatter that is largely ignored and quickly forgotten and makes it much more noticeable and much more likely to lead to uh, uh, to disciplinary measures and then from there likely to lead to a lawsuit. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Eugene. That's Professor Eugene Volick of UCLA Law School. The Supreme Court considered two cases exploring the power of administrative agencies this week alone, a topic of renewed interest among the expanded majority of conservative justices. The cases this week involved a federal patent appeals board and the Social Security Administration, the latest in a string of separation of powers challenges questioning how much authority agencies can wield independent from the president. Joining me is Harold Krant, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Is it unusual that there have been this string of disputes with constitutional challenges to agency structure? Is that unusual or does that happen all the time? The Supreme Court has ushered in a new series of challenges to agency structures because the court is rethinking questions about presidential control over agencies. So at stake are both the appointment mechanisms for agency heads and adjudicators as well as removal provisions. So because the court has inserted uncertainty into this area, individuals who are representing clients before administrative law judges and agencies are inserting claims about appointment and removal 
So in case they lose on the merits, they may be able to still protect their clients by throwing out the decision on the constitutional grounds. Tell us what what happened here. It was a challenge to a Social Security judge? So here there was a typical Social Security disability dispute. There are 800,000 hearings before ALJs a year. And after losing before the ALJ and then losing before the agency itself, the individual presented the constitutional claim before the district court for the first time. And so the Supreme Court took several cases to determine whether or not there is what's called issue exhaustion. You have to exhaust all issues, raise all issues before the administrative law judge. Otherwise, that the court won't hear it if it's raised for the first time in court. So in other words, so the issue that they did not raise until the Supreme Court was the issue of whether or not the Social Security judge was properly appointed? Uh, that's correct. So uh, the Supreme Court decided several years ago that at least administrative law judges within the Securities and Exchange Commission were inferior officers and therefore had historically been appointed unconstitutionally um, and therefore had to be appointed by the head of the agency itself. So there are many cases that preserved this claim before the Supreme Court made that decision. And therefore, they now want to say, look, we were, our case was decided by somebody who was appointed unconstitutionally. Therefore, we get a chance to have a hearing before a properly constituted, a properly appointed administrative law judge. So there are cases pending still from that case. And now there are a whole slew of new cases that are saying, not only do we have a right to be have an adjudication before someone who's been properly appointed, but also someone who is removable um, at will by the agency head to ensure sort of a line of accountability to the president itself. So lots of cases are pending, but the ones that the Supreme Court has looked at so far are ones lingering on from the prior to the Supreme Court decision, which said that administrative law judges have to be are, must be considered inferior officers and therefore have to be appointed in conformance with the Appointments Clause and none historically have been. So why isn't this case moot then if the court has already decided the question about administrative law judges? Because they want a new trial or a new hearing before the ALJ. So in other words, there are probably hundreds of cases that are still in the system which claim that because they had a hearing before an improperly constituted or improperly appointed administrative law judge, they need a new hearing before a different administrative law judge. They are hoping that if they have a new administrative law judge, maybe the result will be different in in favor of their client. And is that what Justice Alito was concerned about when he said it would flood the agency with cases? Yeah, I mean, the question is how much, you know, we've already had full resolution of these social security disability cases. And we already have 800,000 hearings a year. Do we need to have more? Particularly when there's no fact that changes, all it is is a replacement of one ALJ for another. So from an efficiency perspective, certainly the claim doesn't have merit, but the claim does have some traction with the court for a couple of reasons. 
you know, first of all, including that constitutional claim before the agency is futile. The agency or the minister of law judge is never going to hold that he or she has been appointed unconstitutionally. And there is an informal process before it, ALJ. And in a prior case, the Supreme Court has held that it doesn't want to be as exacting in terms of exhaustion of administrative remedies when there is an informal adversary process that takes place. So I think that the court is going to wrestle with this from an efficiency perspective. It's going to want to say, you lost the claim. You no longer can, can raise it if you didn't raise it before the administrative law judge. But because of that precedent and because of just the idea that there is such an informal process before the minister of law judge, some members of the court are certainly going to vote in favor of the claimants here. Some of the justices, I believe Justice Elena Kagan said, well, if the agency had wanted to adopt a different rule, it could have. Yeah, so here, the, the agent, in a prior case, the Supreme Court had held that there was an exception for uh, this exhaustion of issues before the agency itself due again to the informality in which the agency acts in these social security disability cases, um, particularly, you know, if the claim is not closely connected to the merits of the disability case. And so Justice Kagan said, the agency, you are notice. If you really cared about this, you should have adopted a regulation that clearly stated that individuals will forfeit all issues that are not raised before the agency. You had notice, you had time to do it, and yet you sat on your hands, and therefore, you shouldn't complain to us now. And there's some logic in that view as well, because the court has said that this idea of exhaustion is really the turns largely on what Congress or what the agency requires. So their discretion, meaning the court's discretion, is only triggered if it's unclear what the statute or regulation requires. Chief Justice John Roberts seem to be concerned about giving the claimants a do-over. What would prevent claimants from bringing up new claims in federal district courts to get a second bite of the apple? It's a limited do-over issue, but I think what Chief Justice Roberts is saying is at least with respect to these hundreds of cases that are still live from before the Supreme Court decision holding that ALJs were improperly appointed, they'll get a do-over because of a technicality. And is that an appropriate result that the court should endorse? Maybe it's inevitable, but at least the chief justice was worried that there was really no reason equity because of this prior decision that these claimants will get a do-over and not any other claimants, merely because their case was not final by the time the Supreme Court issued the decision. So there is some force in what the chief justice said. Certainly, individuals wouldn't get a do-over for any other kind of claim that they would bring in court that they didn't present to the agency or the ALJ first. But because of the Supreme Court's earlier decision, they would get a chance at a do-over if the court rules in favor of the claimants here. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and some say he's foreshadowing the Justice Department's defeat in this case. He asked the Justice Department attorney, if you were to lose, what's your preferred approach? It may have been tongue-in-cheek because I think it followed a question about on which ground would you think that you're most likely to prevail upon. So it's hard to know whether it was foreshadowing or Justice Kavanaugh was being tongue-in-cheek. But it may have been serious, and it may suggest which way he is leaning as well. And oftentimes, 
it's important for an individual to lose on the least bad way for for his or her client. So again, which way do you think the court is leaning? I think on the grounds of precedent, the court would rule for the claimants. And, you know, my guess is Justice Thomas wrote the prior decision. Um, He's still on the court. And so I would predict with not great confidence that he will be able to marshal a coalition that would suggest that the same result should apply when someone fails to raise a claim before a Mr. Law Judge, just as he ruled that there was no failure if, if a claimant failed to present a case before the agency itself. Is the issue settled now, or are we going to have more of these cases? So the issue is settled with respect to the appointment of administrative law judges, and and I think that there are several hundreds of cases that are still pending based upon that have that question alive. Um, However, there is a new series of cases which are almost identical, which have challenged the constitutionality of ALJs because of their removal provisions, and those are now uh, pending in the courts of appeals and, and district courts. And indeed, the uh, just uh, 10 days ago or so, the D.C. Circuit had a very similar case and refused to address the merits of the removal issue and said that the claimant forfeited his, its claim because it wasn't raised before the agency itself. So it was the same identical issue of, of issue exhaustion, but in the different guise of challenging the removal provisions as opposed to the appointment provision, which means that the Supreme Court decision here will have impact not only on the hundreds of cases that are still left over challenging the proper appointment of the ALJs, but it's still going to be important for all the cases now that are challenging removal provisions as well. So the best thing to do then when you're appearing before an agency is to bring up every possible issue? Certainly a, a claimant would be well advised to include all conceivable issues before the agency. In fact, that is the norm in our system. There is a Generally, there's an exhaustion of available remedies, and not only do you have to go to the agency first, you have to raise all your claims before the agency. That promotes efficiency. That gives respect to agency and allows the agency to use its expertise in developing the record and in answering the claims. Um, so that is definitely the practice. And the question here is, is, should we have exceptions because of the informality of these procedures or because of the nature of this constitutional claim, which no agency ever would agree with? I would think the Supreme Court is exhausted <laughs> with, these, <laughs> with these agency it, questions. So I guess the question would be whether the Supreme Court is exhausted dealing with the exhaustion doctrine. It doesn't seem to be <laughs> because they've taken these cases and... Um, they think it's important sort of to clean up and know whether or not uh, the courts are, should entertain these claims when the claims have not been presented to the agency first. But nonetheless, there's still a lot of cases where these claims have been presented to the agency first. And so the court will have to take some of the questions about the removal provision, for, for instance, on the merits down the road. Why do you think the court keeps taking these kinds of cases? But it's not the most important issue in the world. Uh, and there's a lot of disagreement. There is certainly a split in the circuits um, on on the question. Uh, but you know, they they decided to clean it up, even though it's not the most important issue in the world. Where does the patent case earlier this week fit in? 
It was about the administrative patent judges. But this issue was involved in that case because the challenge to the appointment of the patent judges also arose not before the patent judges themselves, but only in court. And so it's possible that the court wanted to entertain this case because it sort of in a similar issue was pending in the patent judges' cases, and so the court thought that it might have to address them altogether. Thanks, Hal. That's Harold Cranch of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.